The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In order to thrive in today's competitive business market, you need to constantly adapt to change. In other words, reinvent yourself and your company. Welcome to Business Reinvention with host Nancy Lynn. This hour will have you listening to and thinking like the successful business leaders of today. Now, here is your host, Nancy Lynn. Welcome back to Business Reinvention. This is Nancy Lynn. Every week, we bring you thought-provoking ideas from a different industry so that you can connect the dots and stay innovative and competitive. And I'm glad you can join us today for a discussion about innovation in the auto industry. Well, ever since Ford introduced methods for large-scale manufacturing of cars in the early 20th century, there have been little breakthroughs in terms of the business model for the industry. Auto companies pretty much decide what to make, and then consumers just choose from the slate of models available on the market. But if you have been listening to our show, you probably have noticed that customization or personalization is sweeping many industries. From retail to healthcare and even in the music industry, you see the same trend. So the question is, are we going to see the same taking place in the auto industry beyond just giving customers the option to choose the color of their car? Well, you think that might be too complicated and perhaps too costly to do, but a company has decided to take on the challenge. Join us today is Jay Rogers, Jr., President and CEO of Local Motors, who has built a community of car enthusiasts to co-create vehicles for niche markets and to put the design into production at a micro factory. Jay, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Um, so I know that you have worked for a medical startup in China and served in Marine Corps for seven years before going to Harvard Business School. And now you're trying to reinvent the older industry, which is not an easy task. So I'm guessing that you like to live dangerously and make a big impact in the world. Is that right? That's exactly right. We try to do things <laughs> that it's a lot of change needs to happen, so we're looking to make that change. So what is so important about what you're doing? Well, I think that what it really comes down to is that cars are an incredibly, vehicles uh, writ large, are an incredibly resource-intensive part of our economy, more than we, part of the world economy, more than we allow ourselves to know. They're energy-intensive for us. They are um, intensive in our lives in the way in which they intrude on everything that we do, from noise to uh, basic traffic disruption and toward, of course, the accidents and other things like that that we know about. So changing them is something that has a great impact on all of our lives, either for the worse or for the better. And so what's at stake here is saying, can we change them for the better and can we do it faster? And can we do it for less money overall? And can we enfranchise those 6 billion people of the world that currently don't have access to a car and do it in a way that is responsible for future generations all over the world? Mm, okay, so tell us how you're doing it better and what are different ways people can get involved in, in the company. So that is the, the most important thing about what we do, is that we've created a process by which uh, vehicle innovation happens faster and cheaper. And we've created a platform, Local Motors, which is a mix of both our community platform online and microfactory. And a microfactory is basically a small factory that takes advantage of an economy of scope rather than economy of scale. And it says that in the end, if we have the opportunity to be able to make vehicles that are suited to the local environment at a volume that makes sense, whether it's local fuels, local materials, other things like that, then we can empower a local region to put vehicles on the ground and respond to the needs of that local region anywhere in the world instead of doing it with the mass methodology that we've had for the last hundred years, saying we can make vehicles cheaper if we make more of them, but we're going to have to make them all the same. And what we're saying is, and it's a bold statement, that we think there's a way to make vehicles on the margin that are as competitive 
uh, when you make them if you're going uh, into the market um, without having to make hundreds of thousands of them a year, but being able to make thousands of them a year. So that's really what we're offering with this methodology of community creation online and micromanufacturing. Okay, that sounds very intriguing. Um, but just to make sure that the audience understand um, what we're talking about here, why don't we take Rally Fighter as an example? And I believe that's the first car in the world that was co-created by a community. So tell us about the process, where the idea came from, how the engineers work with designers, and how you decide to produce the car and so on. Sure. So the, the Rally Fighter was built in our, designed and developed in our community online and uh, at localmotors.com. And it was built and has been built in our microfactory in Phoenix, Arizona. It's a purpose-built vehicle for the desert and the highway. So it's appropriate in areas of the world which are very hot and have a lot of off-road trails, but also have people who buy them want to be able to go on-road at highway speeds. And this vehicle was designed over the course of about 18 months. It was designed for a capital cost of about $3 million and has the potential for about 2,000 units of it to be made. And those are really the most important numbers that allow you to be able to make the business case associated with it. 18 months, $3 million total invested cost in the vehicle, and the ability to make about 2,000 vehicles. So what you want to compare that to is today's current automotive builds, which are usually between a billion to a billion five for a new automotive line. And so, um, and the ability to be able to make, let's say, many hundred thousand of those vehicles uh, in as the comparable amount. And so, it uh, depends on which vehicle, whether it's a new truck or a new passenger car, other things like that. And so, what we're saying is that if you can spend three million and make two thousand versus spending a billion or a billion five and making several hundred thousand, is that a good trade-off? Now, economically, on the amortized cost of a vehicle. It might cost a little bit less per vehicle if you were to make them in the mass way. But then that means you have to have the same vehicle, every single one, when you're doing it. And, uh, and that's where we, where we really feel that the innovation trade-off happens. Because people will say, if I have to have those several hundred thousand vehicles made, that means I can't change them if new technology comes out. It means I can't make them different per person. It means that I can't really change the vehicle that I created until I've spent all of that time, effort, and money building those first large set of vehicles that I wanted to have. So that's what we did with the Rally Fighter, a real step change in process. And uh, we're now doing it again um, with the next vehicles to come out and really showing how you can expand this. Yeah, and it sounds like you really cut down on the time required um, to develop a new car, which is also important for innovation because over a period, say, five years, which is the average time they take to design a car, a lot of technology would have come out, right? And it would have been really difficult to incorporate that. So tell us how you are able to cut down um, the lead time in terms of design and cut down the production costs. Sure. So I think that, you know, the most exciting thing about this is that we have been judging the way we've been making cars on a hundred years of inherited history on how we had to make cars. There's an old wives' tale that said, and it sort of explains it the best, you know, someone is at home and they learned that they should always cook a pot roast by cutting it in half. And so, you know, person, let's just say it's a young man, he grows up and he says to his wife, hey, I'm going to cook my pot roast by cutting it in half. And she wife says, honey, why would you do that? And he says, because that's the way my mother did it. And so she goes and she asks his mother, she says, is it true that you always made your pot roast by cutting it in half? And she said, yes. And she said, why? And she said, because that's the way my mother always did it. And she goes to the nursing home and consults the grandmother and says, is it true that you always made your pot roast by cutting it in half? And she said, well, sure I did, because my pot wasn't big enough. And so that's exactly where we are in the car industry Mm -hmm. now. We've had many generations of making the pot roast cut in half, and it's been based on decisions because the the pot wasn't big enough many generations ago. But the pot has changed. And so to stretch that analogy, what we're saying is the Internet didn't exist when we first started to design cars. Crowdsourcing didn't exist when we first started to design cars. Co-creative tools like responsive computer-aided design, modeling tools and other things like that didn't exist. And so we have not allowed our car making and car designing and car developing and all vehicles, not just cars, we have not allowed that technology to catch up with the way we do things because we have these big factories today and we have these big ways of making things. And so uh, um, what we're doing is we're applying the tools that are available today, which over 100 years have really lagged from being caught up. 
And those are the tools of computer-aided design from the beginning. Those are the tools of collaboratively sharing price points and finished designs of the vehicles long before the vehicles have been made. We're taking the things that we've learned in open source code and in open source hardware design of smaller items like consumer packaged goods and t-shirts and other stuff like that, and we're applying that to the car industry. And you're actually having a virtual community of designers and engineers um, collaborate on developing the car. Um, So how did you initially develop this um, community? How did people hear about it and how did you um, build a community big enough to have the kind of robust ideas that you want to have? Well, the answer is first, we always want the community to be bigger, and so we've never closed it. It's free to join, and we want more and more people to come in and take part in it. And I think that that's really the premise on which we built it. It's free and open for everyone who has an interest to take part in automotive future in this way, in a vehicular future in this way, and that's the most important thing, letting everyone know that it's open to them. And this has, after all, the promise of open source. You know, open source and the Creative Commons license for protection of intellectual property, it had one basic premise, which was to say, um, you can share your ideas, but other people cannot steal them from you and sell them for a commercial basis unless they would license them from you. So what it meant is it sort of changed the intellectual property paradigm and said, anyone can use anyone else's intellectual property or ideas to develop something that would be better than the last. And that allows people to move quickly and stand on each other's shoulders to be able to get further up. And then there is a critical paper trail that says this five, this ten, this fifty people were involved in the creation of this idea. And so if you think it's worth licensing and putting to work, then let's pay those five, ten, or fifty people associated with it. And, And that's a really cool way of thinking about design of anything, not just of a vehicle. That's right. So do people get paid as long as their design gets used, or do they get paid only when somebody buys the car? No, they will. So I think the answer is um, they would get originally what we've done is we've had people paid when the design is used. And, uh, and that was a good way to start. But there's nothing wrong with expanding that concept to saying now you're going to get paid when the design gets bought. Um, in point of fact, we've offered people the choice in the past, which is to say, take your pick, get paid cash now when your design gets used or get a royalty on things when your design gets bought. Mm, very interesting. Well, let's continue with this conversation after a commercial break. You are listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Follow me on Twitter at BizReinvention for more business news about innovation. We'll be back after these messages. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email nancylin at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. 
Jay, I kind of checked out your website、um, before I started the interview, and I could see that there are a lot of different projects going on. So,、um, can you tell us about different business categories you have, and、uh, you know, does someone have to have a design background to be involved,、um, or are there other ways they can be involved? So, great question. And we should never ever think that the process of reinvention of the car industry applies only to the people who are designing and developing cars. One of the most important things that can happen is you can be a person who has an industrial design idea. You can be a person who is a user. So you could say, "I'm a buyer in the future." You could be a person who's a servicer. So I'm somebody who's going to service vehicles in the future. Or you could be somebody who is attendant in a different way. Let's say a policeman that has to cite、uh, traffic violations, or a legislator or regulator that has to regulate something. All of these people care about vehicular reinvention. And the important point is to be able to enfranchise them, or let them let them know, or be able to let people know what their concerns are in the process. And that's something that we've designed the platform for, which is to have an open conversation for all the people who would be stakeholders in the vehicle revolution to get their ideas out. Nothing's perfect, and we can't know in the future everything that would happen. But certainly, having a more open dialogue about vehicles、uh, is something that would be necessary to keep from making as many mistakes as we can. Okay, so I saw people kind of just throwing out ideas, right? And then, do you, how do you decide which ideas to focus on next? And then,、um, once the designers and engineers get involved, are, are they quality control mechanism to check on the feasibility of design and the production process? How does it work? Tell us more. So, if you're familiar with open source code, or if you're familiar with just basic project management, I guess you could say in an engineering project, you have a lot of people that are working for you, and you want to incent them to come up with ideas based on a goal that they need to get to. And typically, what you're doing is you're breaking down a larger goal into component parts, which are more digestible. And so that's really what we do as a business. What we're saying is we are taking on the project management role of saying these are the parts that I need worked on on a concept. And then allowing people to work toward those. So that's one thing that we do. The next thing, of course, you ask a very good question, which is, how do you choose what projects you're working on at all? And that's really one of the ways that we use the idea factory or the idea mill that's on our on our site. We like people to come in with just basic blue sky ideas. It's something we think has been missing from the automotive industry for a long time. We've done a lot of canvassing over the last seven years, and we've seen that a lot of ideas that people come up with at big car companies or in other places are many. Times regurgitated from things that other people have been working on for a long time. I mean, the very notion of an electric car we all know has been around for longer than the gasoline internal combustion car. Right. And so these are not new ideas. It's just a question of people bringing them up at different times with different technology. And sometimes, every once in a while, you'll get a new idea. And those are the ones that we're really excited about pursuing because it's maybe something that has a lot of fertile ground that hasn't been thought about before. So we use our idea mill to check out those wild and crazy ideas, which just might be an amazing idea. And then we use the project management function of our website to then break those ideas down into component parts and choose which ones we're going to work on. And、uh, I think in the future too, one of the things that we're opening up is right now that would assume that we fund and we develop. So to speak, that three million dollars for a car vehicle, and it may be less for a motorcycle or a bicycle. But the bottom line is that we fund every vehicle development that goes on in our site, and、uh, we've already seen. If you look at our site closely, you can see that、uh, the U.S.、Uh, Navy has come in.、Uh, we've had big companies like uh, BMW, uh, Peterbilt Trucking Corporation that have come in. So we already open up our site to allow larger companies to come in and do things, or larger organizations that don't have to be companies. And、uh, and so we want that to happen more and more and more, where it's not just our development, and it's not even just a large company's development. That it could be an individual that has a really good plan, and they want to come in and they want to tap the community to be able to get their、uh, idea to reality. So, for those that are not commissioned by large companies and partners,、um, do you go into production only when you have a buyer? That's correct. So, more and more, we know today in the world of Kickstarter and the idea of、uh, Indiegogo or Rocket Hub or any of the crowdfunding sites. There's no magic in crowdfunding.、Uh, the notion of crowdfunding as an as an institution is simply to say, before I make something, I'd kind of like to know that there's money behind it from the customer side. And so that's really what we're shooting for. We're shooting for knowing that there are buyers for a vehicle before we decide to fund it.
Mm. And do individual customers have the option of paying for design only and building their car themselves? Right now, we don't have that as an option because, and that's a very logical question. Uh, we feel that um, it's certainly possible, but if you look at what it takes to develop a car, um, the the economics so far, if it's three million dollars to develop a car for tooling, the economics don't make a lot of sense for a lot of customers to develop a car and build one of them. So there still is, I would say, a little micro economy of scale where you just don't have a very big market for one-off development of vehicles. Mm, okay, so now since we're talking so much about production, let's talk about your micro factory. Sure. Um, I guess right now you only have one, is that right? That's correct, and we'll have a okay. second one that's opening up in the fall, and uh, um, we are looking at one, uh, even a third one before the end of the year. Wow, okay, so well, before we get to that future plan, um, w- what is the significance of building micro factories? Um, why haven't other people done it? Was it hard from a technical standpoint, or was it more of a challenge from a profitability perspective? Wow, what a great question. So, um, and so insightful from a point of view of building a micro factory is not theoretically hard. Getting people to think about building cars in small volume is like asking people to think about what it would mean to live in a desegregated environment when everything you've ever known is segregation. So I guess the best way I could put it is when you start to say to a city planner, we want to put a small car factory here in your city, they start to think like a big car factory and they think about rivers and they think about, you know, energy usage and highway congestion and do they have the worker retraining available and they don't even let themselves think about small as an option. And that can be very harmful. They can think about, oh, well, you must be painting cars because all car factories paint cars. So now we need a non-attainment zone to be lifted in order to allow you to paint or we need other kinds of, you know, chemical uh, waivers for you to come in. It's amazing how much Uh, um, ghost regulatory overhead there is when you even get into a conversation. So building one is more about the specter of what people think it means in being making it difficult rather than how difficult it actually is. In point Mm. of fact, it's quite simple to build a microfactory. It's taken us about five acres to do, a small portion of which is the microfactory itself and the rest of which is a testing track. You have to worry about things, you know, like do you have the right insurance in place? Do you have the right fencing to keep people from coming into it? Can you make it available for people to see so they're attracted by it? Can you find the right real estate to do it? But those are all easy things. Um, The harder part is just the expectation of what people think you're trying to do before you've even done it. Very interesting. And how do you source your parts? I mean, without getting too details, but I'm just starting to think about, you know, how do you manufacture only 2,000 cars and still be profitable, I would think you need to create new parts, or are you trying to leverage parts that already exist? I think you you just answered the question right there. We try to make very careful selection of which parts we make new and which parts we reuse from the currently available parts bin of the world. So you'll find we buy things from all over the world that are already made. And to be truthful, if we had to design and make those parts ourselves, it would be prohibitively expensive for us to Mm -hmm. pursue this model. But the truth is, that's the world we live in right now. If I had to go back and reinvent the wheel, literally, and create a wheel and pay for all of what it would take to be able to do that, if I had to reinvent the process of the internal combustion engine or batteries or other things like that, then it would be prohibitively expensive. But the fact of the matter is, and we know this today, we stand on the shoulders of other technologies that are available. The iPhone wouldn't be available if it wasn't for certain technology that had been developed in previous instantiations. The, the personal computer wouldn't have been available if it wasn't. The, the various things that we see in video games and other things like that make other things available. Video chips that allow us to be able to do things on a phone, which we wouldn't have done because people wanted to play video games. So standing on the shoulders of other industries and of the current automotive industry to use things like brakes when we don't want to redesign them for a specific car or to use things like bearings or springs or other things like that. We don't need to remake them. They're already available, and we can order them in lots of 2,000 to fill out our entire uh, production line because they really are very inexpensive at the prices in which they're available for the larger mass automotive market. 
And did 3D printing technology play an important role to make this micro factory possible? Um, or like you said, it's really just a matter of convincing the policymakers um, to provide the kind of support and the permit that you needed? A great question. So, I mean, I'd like to say that 3D printing is kind of, it's half the tulip bulb craze of, you know, Holland in, during the, you know, the tulip bulb mania, and it's half reality. 3D printing is, in my way, the best way, is, a, is another name for rapid prototyping. And it doesn't have to be printed. It, ha- it can be cut. It can be burned. It can be formed, shaped, vacuumed. Um, so the idea of rapid prototyping with fast methods is very real. Certainly, 3D printing is in its infancy. And so there's a limited number of things that 3D printing can do, but that number is increasing all the time. And we use it in our factory. And it does help you to make these things a reality. But it's not just the printing. It's also 3D milling and 3D lathe work and those sorts of things that make a difference. What I would like to say is probably a better use of the term is numerically controlled building. So using computer numerically controlled, otherwise known as CNC, um, to be able to either print or cut uh, things or burn things in the case of uh, you know laser cutting or in the case of uh, water jet cutting, those kinds of things. Um, those kinds of uh, techniques using numerically controlled systems are in many ways complexity independent, meaning you can design something that's very complex on a computer and the machine that makes it does not understand the complexity nor does it care. Mm. And, uh, um, so so a few minutes ago you mentioned that you plan to open maybe two or more um, factories, um, but, but right now you really only launch one car. So what is the rationale behind the expansion? Great question. So microfactories serve about 12 purposes when they go in. They're not just to make a car um, or make a vehicle. So we have done one car. We have, if you follow our website, we've finished a motorcycle design, which will be put out in July. We're in the process of designing a motorized bicycle right now, which competition will end very soon. But it's still going on, so you can take part in it as you go on. It's called the Cruiser, and that will be available in the fall. So by the fall, we'll have three vehicles available, car, motorcycle, and bicycle motorized bicycle. And uh, um, and so that's three vehicles. We've also done a military vehicle so far, and we'd like to do other special purpose vehicles as it comes along. So we like to move quickly. We don't just wait 18 months and then a full sales cycle to sell 2,000 and then go on to the next one. And so our rationale also is that some of those vehicles, all of them, ought to be usable in more than one microfactory. Not in every microfactory, but in other microfactories that are in locations that share similar attributes to the first one that you started. And so effectively, the truth is in the world that there are many micro locations that can take advantage of at least some of the volume of a small volume vehicle that you've done in another place if it's planned properly. Very interesting. Well, it looks like it's time to take another break. You are listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. We'll be back after these messages. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Or listen on demand to our archived shows. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. Well, Jerry, I could tell that the business model was very well thought out. Um, so what's your biggest challenge so far? Oh, great question. So biggest challenge is, I mean, this is really for, I think, probably what I hope would be most well understood by your listeners. Um, we have had a capital uh, overhang in this country for the last 20 years that I would call sort of the Dutch disease of the Internet. And when we talk about the U.S., and especially Silicon Valley, being a place that's so good for venture capital and risk capital, I think we've begun to lie to ourselves a little bit. And my challenge has been, to be frank, has been raising capital for an open-sourced hardware business. Mm -hmm. Because people think about putting money into Internet businesses or startup businesses that do code or uh, various things like that, where the the marginal cost of making a product is zero. And today, as we work on open source hardware, the marginal cost is not zero. And so the returns associated with it, by almost by dictum, cannot look as good as a Google or as an investment like Microsoft. And so um, it changes the nature of what we're doing such that many of the venture capital firms that are set up to invest in software or invest in apps are, um, are not in a mindset where they're thinking about investing in open sourced hardware. Now, the, the meaning for the world and the returns are still fantastic. Well, the meaning for the world is, is better and bigger than anything that's done in software to date because of how real and it affects our lives in so many ways. Um, it, but unfortunately, the returns are always going to be limited in some ways by the fact that the marginal cost of making something has real impact, and it is not zero. And so that meant that the challenge is resetting people's expectations to say, look, this is still a great and burgeoning space where if everything in an Internet deal or in an app development deal is being competed for um, uh, deal size, and that's a negative, why don't you turn that discount that you're having to take or that premium that you're having to pay in competing for deals in investing in them to starting to look at open source hardware businesses and co-creative hardware businesses where you don't have the same return associated with the fact that there is marginal cost in making units, but there are fewer people playing in it right now. And so I think what we're seeing right now is that's the challenge playing out. There is mean reversion to what might be the longer-term risk capital mean of capital returns for investors, and they're having to look at where they're going to apply capital. And you hear many people in subtle circles in Boston and in the Bay Area and in London and other places where venture capital is big today starting to talk about and have been talking about the fact that the venture capital model is broken and that there are many firms whose you know, general partnerships are being gutted and other things like that. And I don't think the risk capital market is gutted. I just think it's people have to take a look at where there is new advantage. And uh, so that's been our greatest challenge is trying to educate the market to understand that we're not a software deal. We are a hardware deal and, uh, and that we are part of a new maker movement. We're part of a new co-creative DIY culture and, uh, and that that is going to have its own source of funders, people who are engineers and makers who understand that kind of thing. And it's going to take a little while for that industry to develop and it's going to go through a real boom. Yeah, I could I totally feel for you. Um, You know, based here in San Francisco, um, I see how difficult even for um, the hardware developers to get a meetup group going. Um, That just tells you um, how challenging it is to get attention um, from, you know, investors and also, um, you know, engineers in this particular area that's supposedly most open minded. Um, So I could totally see um, what you're saying. And I think the funny thing is that what people don't often realize that Apple is a hardware company. Yeah. And it's the largest company on stock exchange, um, far bigger than Facebook, even though you hear so much about Facebook and Google. But still, Apple is by far the biggest company. And um, the reason that they could get so big and is also because with hardware, um, you could really definitely charge a premium. But the life cycle or the, I should say, the lead time for development is very long. And so for investors who are used to more short-term kind of return, it is a very big shift. And so I could see how that could be a real challenge. But like you said, I hope that will start to change. Oh, I think it's it's already changing. And I, I like to call Apple, it's great that you brought it up as an example, because it's an example of an incredibly profitable hardware company that was started 
30 years ago, more. And so the answer is, here you have, you, you say, if you're trying to reinvent 100 years of vehicle-making history, you're also trying to reinvent 30 years of consumer electronics-making history. And that's a lot to overcome, but it shows you that there's a lot of profit in hardware if you do it right, and all we're doing is saying, let's apply some modern methods to how we choose hardware. Definitely. And so I guess one of your um, goals right now would be also to generate more interest in buying cars from your websites, right? How do you plan to do that? Very good question. So I think that when we went into this headlong, I think one of the things that we thought is that uh, the Internet was robust enough that people were ready to buy vehicles over the Internet. Um, you saw the advance of uh, you know eBay Motors uh, in the last five years. You've right. seen all these sites where people will now truly buy a car site unseen. And uh, so I think we're seeing that pick up more and more every month, every year. And, uh, um, and I think that what we're doing is we're saying we need people to understand and take faith that real transactions for large amounts of money can happen over the Internet. But we've backstopped that by making the microfactory accessible, by opening up one of the questions I don't think I really finished fully answering for you is why expand one of the things you need to do is make a microfactory or at least make our vehicles accessible to enough owners so they see that they can go to it. The example I give here is there are very few Ikeas in the country compared to how many cities and places there are. There are very few Bass Pro Shops or Cabela's associated with how many cities there are in the United States alone. But people will drive usually hours in order to be able to visit one if they haven't been because it's such a draw for them. Wow. And we look at the microfactory in the same way, that it ought to be something where you would drive hours to go and visit um, because it's so different and it makes something that's so unprecedented. So we, don't, we won't put them everywhere, but my goal is to have, in the end, something around 100 microfactories in this country where people would be able, within an hour's, several hours' drive, to be able to find one. That's kind of like your dealership for you right there. Yeah, it's just like a modern-day dealership. You know, the funny thing is is that car dealers today are with usually within minutes for you to get to, and that's what we've come to. Um, but they offer a very different kind of product. They're offering those hundreds of thousands of units of a car, um, and therefore they unfortunately have to compete on price. If one dealer down the road five minutes away is a better price on the same car that you have, guess what? You're going to lose your customer. So is that also why you decided to have your first factory in Arizona as opposed to Michigan or Detroit somewhere? Great question. Yes, in part. And I'm so glad you asked about that. You know, one of the things that you have to own up to in the new hardware movement is um, unlike a virtual company or a software company where you can be wherever you want to live, in a microfactory build methodology, you actually have to be someplace. And that place has to be close to where the customers are. So for me, I didn't have any personal history in Arizona, and for many of the people that work at the first microfactory, they didn't either. Um, so effectively, we had to go sight unseen because the customers in online said this was a place to build the kind of car that they wanted to see. And we looked around a lot of different places that were like this, and we chose this one for a lot of reasons, and we hired more than 50% of the uh, headcount in the company now since we've been there, more than that. And, uh, and so it's exciting to find new places and live the world of an open hardware company um, because it has real, real legs, real teeth. You, you have to get invested in a community to start building a product that's meaningful there. Definitely. So where do you think the U.S. auto market is heading and what role would you like your company to play, say, three or five years from now? Well, I think, you know, despite the analyst calls that you may sit on and other things like that, the U.S. auto market right now is, is stagnant. Um, there, I mean, the bottom line is that, you know, at our zenith, we were making 16 million cars a year new in the United States. But used car market is already caught up. And the bottom line is it's just not going to be the biggest market in the world anymore. There are many places. We just have 300 million cars on the road in the U.S. or on the ground in the U.S. We only have that many people and a little more in population total, many of which are too young or too old to drive. And so the bottom line is we don't need that many cars in the U.S. So what we're looking at in the U.S. market is we're looking at replacement. You know, how can you come in and how can you make a better car than what I'm driving right now? And that really means full replacement. It doesn't just mean that, okay, I can sell it to somebody new because they're going to pass that car into the used market and then someone else is going to buy it there. And so we're just trading cars around. And what we really need to do is have breakthrough products that make us trade the final car, trade our car finally to the, to the junk heap of history so that we get into a new market totally. It's mm. sort of, if you want to think about it, the smartphone market just a couple of years ago, they didn't exist. 
and now you, you find it hard pressed to find people that don't have a smartphone that have a phone. And, uh, um, and I think that basically that's what we're talking about needing to do in the auto industry. We need to start wholesale changing the technology we're driving on, and that's what we want to be part of. I don't think we're going to be the whole market by any means, but we want to spur the market to think about different technologies. And the big guys will play in this too, and I think there will be other small companies that will play in it. We will only be part of the ecosystem, but we want to be a lead, and we want to be a very important part. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm curious as to the average age of your community and the reason I'm asking is one of the big challenges for the auto industry is that the younger generation tends to um, buy less cars uh, because a lot of them choose to rent or they're really into collaborative consumption movement. So do you think your business model might have potential to maybe convince more of the younger generation to actually think about owning a car? Hush. Again, great question. So I think that uh, what you just brought up was a, one of my most favorite things to talk about, which is sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy of what younger people want. Um, if I don't have a phone where I can buy apps, then I won't be interested in the app market. But if the phone allows me to buy and design apps, where I can download an SDK and design apps, then suddenly it becomes an entire industry. And for the last five or six years, people have been talking about the death of the car because youth don't care about cars anymore, and they're into collaborative consumption and things like that. But that might just be, and I believe everyone in our company and community believes, that that's because nobody's given the youth of the world something affordable and interesting to work on and talk about. But -hmm. if that were available, I think that that whole premise changes. And that's what I'm interested in doing. I want to renovate the car industry so that the youth of the world are actually interested in participating. Right now, we're giving them nothing interesting to participate in. The things that are affordable to them are cars you wouldn't want to drive. They're boring. They're the kind of thing that you would want to share because you don't take any pride in owning. But if you ask the youth of the world that are doing all of this consumption in other things, do you care about being individual? Heck yeah, they care about it. Look at the t-shirts they wear. Look at the phone apps that they buy. Look at the things that they design in art and in software and in film. They're incredibly individual, and they're incredibly committed to their passions. But if you give them, you know, and I mean nothing about wrong about the company, you give them a Hyundai or a Toyota Yaris or a Chevy Aveo, and you say, take pride in this car, it's a joke. They can't do anything to it. They can barely touch it under the hood without voiding the warranty. So why wouldn't they want to collaboratively consume that vehicle? Because it means nothing to them. And so I think that that's what we're going for. We want the car to mean something to you again, and there's so much potential for that to happen. Yeah, I think you have a very good point, a good approach of engaging them, and love your analogy about providing the tool to um, to get to the products they really want. Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Go to bizreinvention.com for more information about the show. We'll be back after these messages. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. 
To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. So, Jay, there are big dreamers and then there are lazy dreamers. You have a good track record of putting your vision and passion into reality. And your company was actually created in 2007, right around the time of financial crisis, when many auto companies went or almost went bankrupt. So how did you have the courage and to start your company? And what did you do to keep yourself motivated? Oh, well, so I think that the most important thing is that I hear many people, young people today, saying that they want to... um, be entrepreneurial, and they want to do something different. I think that happens a lot in recessions or in recessionary times because you're not doing that well in your current home that you own or the job that you have or whatever it is that was your asset before is worth less more now. And so you find people wanting to break out and do something different because their status quo isn't going to get them to what they thought they were going to do. But many of those people say, you know what, I don't know what I want to do. And, and that's a dangerous thing. Going out to be an entrepreneur when you don't have an idea is, is, in my book, a bad mix because you can find yourself in a worse position than where you were before. So the first step that I would say is think about your passions because your passions are really what lead you, to the, the, the hard, lead you through the hard times. And there will be hard times in every startup business. But if you find your passion then you can really spend those tough times um, feeling like you're going after something that you enjoy doing. And so uh, that's really the first thing that I would say. I was passionate about vehicles. I was passionate about this kind of technological change. I was passionate about upending the capital markets to really get them to focus on new things. And so for me, that's what helped get me through what have been six and a half years of some very trying times trying to change the vehicular market. And I think that I've seen so many great entrepreneurs in these last six and a half years as I've been trying to start my own business that have been, uh, that have been buoyed by the same work. And you will often find people who will naysay entrepreneurialism and they will say, well, the truth is the majority of people fail and that you only hear from the people who have won as to why it's great to be an entrepreneur. And I look at it differently. I think that if you actually look at the people who are deeply passionate about things that they're doing, failure is a very, is a very strange term because they're, they're passionate. The successes they have, even though it's not judged in an internal rate of return method, they may feel very successful in the things that they did regardless of what happened in that investment. Yes, there are losers that regardless of what they've done, they're business losers, you know, the, the investment they made is a loser. Um, but they, and they felt like they wasted their time. But I think when passion comes into it, more often than not, we don't judge how successful those entrepreneurs feel about what they've done, even if the return is not one that you know, can be plastered on the front of the New York Times and say, wow, this person had a great financial deal. So if you're passionate about it, I would go after it. And uh, um, you know, it's going to be hard work. You have to put together the people, the opportunity, the context, and the deal to make it worth you doing. But if you can put those four elements together, then you go after it. If you can't, then you wait. And you keep your J-O-B if you can find one, or you find a new job if you can find one that's close to what you want to do, and you bide your time until your people, your opportunity, your context, and your deal are all ready for you to charge off on it. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. You know, really have a clarity about what your passion and the vision is will we'll definitely help you you know, stay motivated um, a lot of time. And I think you also touch on a very important point, and that's is to define your own success, right? Rather than being judged by others as to what success should be. Um, and you touch on risk as well, and, and love to have you elaborate on that a little bit because there are definitely a lot of people thinking about trying out innovative ideas but are held back by the concern of potential failure or financial risk. So what do you say to those people, and what do you do when you are at that very risky and shaky situation yourself. Well, so first, a little bit of levity will always help. One of my oldest and best advisors has always said to me, if everybody told you what you were about to do was a great idea, you should not do it and run the other way. (laughs) Because that means that if it were that obvious, somebody would have already done it. But But if people tell you that it is... If people tell you that it's a bad idea, that's when you really need to think because it might be the best idea that nobody's ever figured out before or it just might be a bad idea and you should run. So I think the answer is I love that advice because at least it tells you go after the things that are risky and hard because, you know, it's very, very rare that something is so obvious and everybody knew it and you were just the first person to figure it out. 
So I think that you know, risk is part of an entrepreneur's mantra. And the other thing that that advisor used to always say to me, and he's been really right about this, is that um, you know, entrepreneurialism or you know, the, the, that which makes you go after a startup idea is one that is mixing um, pessimism with inse- incessant optimism, you know, abject fear with incessant joy. And they're two sides of your entrepreneur's coin. You cannot be an entrepreneur without waking up pessimistic in the morning and having to fight it back and be optimistic. And you cannot wake up without being incredibly optimistic about what you're, or joyful about what you're doing, and yet know that there's great fear if it fails. Those are normal things that keep you alive as an entrepreneur. As Andy Grove used to say, only the paranoid survive. And as many soldiers will tell you who have been in combat before, that if you don't fear, then you're not a good soldier. Yeah, but have the resilience to bounce back. That's right, right. and that's the that's the tough part. If you find yourself the kind of person who can really be optimistic, but you can also listen to fear, um, who can really fail, but can wake up the next morning and see the bright side in something, you'd be you're on the road to being a great entrepreneur. Okay, so we have like 60 seconds to close. So I want to get one last piece of advice from you. Um, so there are a lot of people with great ideas, right? But turning an idea into a vision and a company and a strategy is a different thing. So what, where would you start? I mean, what questions should they ask themselves to take their idea further? Okay, the one piece of advice that I would have with this in the closing time is share your idea. Too many entrepreneurs that I see who don't know whether they should go forward or not hand themselves in by saying, I couldn't share it because somebody would steal it. That's a bad motivation in my mind. Find as many people as you can trust. There's always a risk somebody will steal something from you, but find as many people as you can trust because the things you learn when you take that risk to share are worth their weight in gold. And that's my best piece of advice for somebody who's sitting on the fence and thinking, hmm, Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, but I can't tell anyone because it's such a good idea. I'm afraid they're going to steal it. That's your first trap. Get out of that trap and tell people what you're thinking about, people you trust, people you think might be interested, and get their feedback. Even if you feel they might steal it from you, you'd be better off getting their feedback and learning how to improve your idea before you go for it and take more risk. Great advice. And you have been such an inspiration. I'm really excited for you, and I wish you all the best. Thank you for spending time with us. Thanks, Nancy. Well, that's all for today's show. Thank you for tuning in. Please go to bizreinvention.com for more information about the show and make sure to join us again next week for a discussion about new energy revolution. Hope to talk to you then. Take care and enjoy the rest of your day. We hope that you've enjoyed Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. Please join us for another edition of our groundbreaking program next Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll find the inspiration for change over the coming week. 